Good evening, everyone. So, any questions tonight? Yes. Okay, um, the thing is, uh, I've never been a, uh, a person that dreams that much, like sleep dreaming, you know? And, uh, since I've been here, and I've been here for maybe a week and a half, yeah, I think so. And, uh, I've been having a lot of dreams, different random dreams, and, uh, all of a sudden I'm just waking up in different moments of the night, and, they're not nightmares, for sure, but they're just different random dreams. And I, I wanted to know, if, like, what part of the consciousness like, work and, um, like, if you could just, uh, kind of explain you know, Well, dreaming is, uh, is a, a state of consciousness, as it's described in, in the Bhagavatam. We have wakefulness, waking state, jagrata, the swapna, the dream state. And shushupti, um, um, a dreamless state, and then it's described as um, beyond. So the first three states of consciousness are material, and the fourth is transcendental. It's described as the fourth, turiya. Uh, rather uh, uh, lacking in specificity, hmm? implying that it's a state that is beyond words, which we might voice in the waking state, beyond thought, which is active in the dreaming state. Hmm? And similar to dreamlessness, in that it's restful, and the mind and the senses cease to uh, harass us, but still, at the same time, different than the dreamless state in that it's permanent and, and transcendental. So... Sometimes the dreamless state is used as an example. Two ways. The dreamless state is used to, as an example of the nature of the fourth stage of consciousness, the transcendent stage. And as I was just uh saying in that we are presently under the call, the demand, the tyranny of our minds and our senses. We get a little rest from our senses when we sleep, but the mind is active in dreams. And so liberation, mukti, is thought to be free from that tyranny of the mind and the senses, and therefore restful. So, we have an example in our everyday life hmm, that we can draw upon hmm, to 
on the stand in a general sense about that fourth state, that's deep sleep. So when you go to sleep at night, you don't dream. Hmm? Your mind is not troubling you. Your senses are not troubling you. And you're restful. And you wake from it and say, oh, I was I was sleeping very nicely. Hmm. I was, it was very restful. The experience was very restful. So the idea is that the second point that's drawn from this is that that it's related that you were remembering something you can't remember something that you didn't experience so you experienced a state of restfulness beyond the demands of the mind and the senses in deep sleep. And you experience it because you remember it. So the implication is that you were existing even though the mind and the senses were not operative. And so the implication is that that there is life beyond the mind and the senses. Dreamless sleep or deep sleep is not the whole of that experience, the fourth, but it, it serves as an example in everyday life hmm, of the idea or the ideal hmm, that there's restfulness beyond the dictates of the mind and the senses. And we experience it every, every time we have a deep and restful sleep. Of course, we wake up and you know, life begins again and so forth. And, um, and still, there, there, but there, there are spiritual practices, sadhana, by which we can actually arrest the mind, arrest the senses, and stop being harassed by them and enter into a permanent state of consciousness that's free from their demands. We live, we exist independent of the mind and the senses. Hmm? This is the theory. And we get some semblance of that uh, idea, as I say, from, from deep sleep. So this is a famous example that's used in, in the scriptures hmm? to point to the turiya, the fourth state, this, this ineffable state. We call it the fourth it's beyond words, beyond thought. And, so, and again, it's, it's restful. Hmm? You're asking about the dreaming state. Hmm? And you're saying that you're being troubled by it. <laughs> anyway, yeah, there are troubles with, the, uh, with thought. Hmm? Thought is something that arises in the, in the subtle body. It's, it's not something that arises in the self itself. So we, as a soul, as an Atma, are independent of thought and word. Uh, you see how you are identified with your body hmm? and how much you are identified then with your thoughts. Hmm? The thoughts arise only in the, in the subtle body. Hmm? Now, thought cannot arise in the subtle body if it's not um, empowered, so to speak, by consciousness proper, which allows it to take on an experiential uh, 
type of um, reality whereby the self has, through the subtle body, gets some experience of the physical world. Hmm. Um, but the self isn't the thinker. Hmm. Self approves thoughts hmm, and disapproves thoughts. If it's trained, if we give a good association, it can approve the right thoughts. It can get, also get the right thoughts from scripture, from sadhu sangha, and keep approving them, approving them, and so forth. That will facilitate its moving from the material states of consciousness to the transcendental state to the fourth. So, uh, anyway, the thought world is a big world. There's the physical world in, in, in Vedanta, in Gaudiya Vedanta, and there's the mental world. Two. Now, there's many people in analytic philosophy and science would like like to think that the mind is just the brain, and so they try to they try to demonstrate and uh, ultimately uh, ultimately demonstrate. Meanwhile, philosophize on how this could be the case. Hmm. That mind is really a physical function of the brain. There's no such thing as a mind, but they're having a very difficult time doing that. Hmm. And from our perspective, they're having a difficult time because the mind is a separate category of matter from physical matter. Let's call it mental matter or psychic matter. Hmm. And um, this is taught in the, in the scriptures. And this is an ancient idea. In ancient India, that is, and um, and so some people in the in the Western philosophical and, and scientific community are beginning to uh, doubt the possibility uh, or the idea that mind is the brain and are starting to posit the idea that there's a separate category of matter called called mind that functions differently, perhaps under different laws and needs to be explored and so forth. Some type of what might be called category dualists, different categories of matter, mental and physical. So this, again, is an idea that, that is is part of the Hindu texts from for long ago in the West, we have uh, the famous uh, uh, Rene Descartes and his statement, and maybe in the seventeenth, sixteenth centuries, seventeenth hmm? century, seventeenth century, that I think, therefore, I am. Hmm? Pardon me. Eighteenth. It was the seventeen hundred. I think, therefore, I am. So he said, because we he differentiated between um, mental life, which he identified with the self, I guess, the soul, and uh, and the physical life. But um, 
long before that in India, differentiation was made between mind and matter and a further differentiation between the Atma and mind. So the Atma, the self, is different than the physical matter and different than the psychic matter. According to the Hindu scriptures, and um, and this was quite a bit earlier, thousands of years earlier, and had a very subtle uh, arguments in Sankhya and Yoga and Vedanta and Nyaya and so forth about the the Atma and the mind and the and the physical world and how they work work together, how one influences the other, and so on and so forth. This kind of thing. Um, to arguments, I mean to say, that are like going on today in Western philosophy. Um, so it's possible that the Western think tank could could um, uh, amongst those who are beginning to posit the idea of mental matter might look into um, ancient Hindu uh, uh, schools of thought and how they thought about this mental matter and so forth. But at any rate, from our perspective, there is a whole realm of the mental. This is where the paranormal activities go on, like um, that people talk about um, uh, and are hard to capture on on film. but uh, there are some there are some very good evidence for the paranormal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a mental world. It's not a spiritual world. But the mental world um, is very uh, fluid, and many possibilities exist there in comparison to what we find in the physical world. It's much more spacious accommodating many more possibilities. I've said many times, using Prabhupada's example, in the physical world you can have gold and you can have a mountain, but you you can't have a gold mountain. But in the mental world you could. So, um, there are many possibilities that lie there. People get involved in it somehow and, and they can read futures to some extent and they can intuitively understand uh, things and and uh, astral type travel and things of this nature uh, lucid dreaming and so forth and so there's a, there's a there's a world there from our perspective a mental world hmm. a lot of the things that are talked about in the Bhagavatam are the mental are the part of the mental world they're not the part of the physical world, but the mental world. Hmm. Um, so, uh, that said, I mean, I'm just giving an overview of this uh, broader idea, but um, the dreams that we have at night, the dreaming is a state of consciousness in which the mind is active, but the senses, for the most part, are, are laid to rest. Hmm. Now, but what will dreams consist of? Basically, they'll consist of um, largely pieces of our experience 
in the physical world, in the, in the waking state. Pieces of it combined in odd ways and so forth. There's also um, the, um, the past, the subtle, uh, the appearance of the past in the subtle world. The karmic past hmm, can appear in the subtle world and play itself out, especially in a devotee's life, such that he or she does not have to play out that karma in the waking state. It can be burned off in the, phys- in, in the, in the, uh, in the dream state. Hmm? So there's a lot of thing, number of things that go on there hmm? that um, are probably not worthy of giving much importance to. Hmm? Other than if you could think, glad I retired that in the dream state because it wouldn't have been very pleasant in the waking in the waking state. Um, <laughs> and um, and uh, of course we know that we have dreams that are based on impressions during the waking state, during the day, what we're preoccupied with, and so forth, reappears in a jumbled way, and so on and so forth, and, and that we understand as well, fragmented thoughts and, and so forth. So there's those type of experiences, their actual karmic experiences playing themselves out. And then there are also extraordinary spiritual experiences. And then there are, there's something in between that. Uh, let's say in, the, in our waking state, we're preoccupied with devotional activities, meditating on the deity, serving the guru and the devotees and the dham and so forth, hearing and chanting. So we can dream about the deities, we can dream about hearing, chanting. Hmm. Um, devotees will appear in our dreams and and so on and so forth. These tend to be auspicious uh, dreams that are nonetheless just basically um, a result of your mental preoccupation in the daytime. They don't necessarily have meaning beyond that or significance, but it's it, they're, they're uh, good thoughts, so to speak, to have. Hmm? And their indication of your mental preoccupation in the daytime, that hmm? your time and your thoughts, your thinking has been um, well spent, so to speak. Now, beyond that, I call it kind of a quasi-spiritual dream that has spiritual content to it, but it's not a spiritual dream in which, for example, Something is being conveyed by God or by the Guru hmm? through through the dream, which is possible. Hmm? So there is the possibility of receiving mantras in dreams. Uh, the examples there in Brihad Bhagavatamrita, hmm? and uh, the devotee received the dream from the the, the, the mantra from the goddess and so forth in a dream. So. Um, there are examples like this. It's, this is this is possible. These are profound spiritual dreams, and those are rare. And um, most devotees don't don't have them, but there are instances of them. So hmm, there is the possibility that in the mental realm, in the dream state, hmm, there are um, something significant 
with regard to your spiritual life can occur. Hmm? But um, such dreams would have other characteristics to the certain characteristics to them, which would uh, so such they could be identified as such, and for the most part, as I say, um, are spiritual dreams are, excuse me, kind of quasi-spiritual and don't constitute um, some type of transmission, hmm? uh, but maybe auspicious nonetheless. So I've given some different types of ideas of dreaming, but it's basically, again, the, 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 the body is resting, the mind is, um, is active, and... Um, but not in an organized way. There is a possibility of, of lucid dreaming and organizing and kind of practicing to function in the, in the mental realm, in the, dreams, in the dream state. People do that. It's not something that, that we do in our spiritual practice. And often that's done by persons who misidentify the mental world with the spiritual world, which is understandable because it's, it's different and there are possibilities that, uh, that that don't exist in the waking state and they seem um, mystical and magical in comparison to what could be done in the waking state and therefore we call them spiritual or people think of them as spiritual but again we refer to them as psychic and the functioning of the of, the, of subtle matter um, to give another example, when we die, sometimes people have near-death experiences. So something happens, they, 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 medically they die, the brain stops, the heart stops, and they have an experience, and then, they, and then they come back, and they remember that near-death experience. But what we hear from such reports basically is that the same person hmm, is giving the report of what was ex- he, was ex- he or she was experiencing. The same person who's lying on the bed. But that person and that persona hmm, is material. Hmm. Obviously, the, the material self is a psychic self, and it plays itself out in the physical world, in the waking state. But it's 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 a it's a kind of a extended mental sense of self. So while the physical body may stop, the point I'm making here is that the the, the psychic dimension of matter, in this case, in the form of a self, an ego, an ego self, continues on. It's through the vehicle of that subtle body that one takes another gross body in reincarnation. So the near-death experience, what I'm saying from our perspective, is not a spiritual experience. It's a profound and an important experience in that um, that uh, it could be said to demonstrate the fact that mind is not the brain. Brain stops, brain's dead, mind continues on. And again, many people try to say that the think that the brain, the mind is the brain. There's only the physical. There is no, there is no mind. There is no 
mental, real mental self, or what to speak of a spiritual self. So, the near-death experience could be um, evidence, empirical evidence, uh, to support the idea that there is a mind and mind stuff and mental matter that exists independent of physical matter. Hmm? We say that as well. But, again, we're going another step further and saying that the spiritual is different and the spiritual is characterized in the very basic sense by the effacement of or the deconstruction of the ego, the ego persona, the material persona. So when the same persona, independent of the body and, and, and the brain, is experiencing, it's the same ego. You understand? It's not an embo- not embodied, but it's the same materially conditioned and constructed self that has to be deconstructed in order to be free from, well, the thought realm, as well as the sense realm. So, Again, the near-death experience is, is, is we don't consider it spiritual, but it's, it's significant, important, and and it it perhaps um, serves as some evidence to support something that was also part of the Vedanta and uh, and uh, our teaching, our particular form of Vedanta and other forms of Vedanta for the most part as well. That there is a subtle, different mental category of matter. But beyond that, then. Hmm? Now, when we say the fourth, beyond that, the transcendental realm, the ineffable, and so forth, hmm? then from the Gaudiya Vedanta perspective, we're talking about a kind of baseline of what transcendence consists of. It consists of, again, the deconstruction of the material ego and the experience of restfulness, peace, shanti, shanti, shanti. But in Gaudiya Vedanta, our method of arriving, uh, transcending beyond, arriving beyond, going beyond the physical world, the waking state, the dream state, and the deep sleep state, and entering the transcendental state, the method is, is bhakti. And so bhakti involves... Uh, two things. It involves deconstructing the material ego. Hmm. That I'm Costa Rican, I'm, a, I'm North American, man, woman, and so forth. Deconstructing that, which will be restful, hmm. because it's a mental construct, hmm. and it needs to, you need to struggle to maintain it, and and so forth. And the thoughts drive us, and the senses. Uh, dictate to us and so forth and uh, and we slave under their uh, influences the tyranny as I said earlier of the mind and the senses hmm? um, so uh, in bhakti we uh, that self is deconstructed but but it's deconstructed the mental and physical sense of self it's deconstructed in the context of constructing hmm? a, a spiritual persona who is not, who is restful in terms of being free from the harassment 
of the mind and the senses, but active, nonetheless, in the joy of bhakti itself, hmm? rather than restful, and that's all. Hmm? So some schools of Vedanta seek to be restful, and that's all. Hmm? We seek to be restful in terms of being freed from that influence, but to come but in bhakti we come under another influence, another shakti. Hmm? While the Maya Shakti creates a persona that's problematic. Hmm? Krishna's internal energy, Sarup Shakti that Bhakti is constituted of, gives rise to the to a persona for participating that, that that's cap- that, that enables us, facilitates us to participate in Leela Seva, in service in Leela of Krishna. Hmm? So this is uh, joyful, active, the thoughts are all good, the senses are all uh, of, of that form, are all fully engaged in the service of Krishna's senses. Hmm? And uh, and so it's, it's a, an active and positively kind of blissful state. And therefore it's called the fifth state. Gopal Tapanipanashad, what is it? Turiyatita Gopala, the fifth state, identified with Gopal. And that's the ideal of the... Devotees, as I was saying the other day, that ideal hmm, and that sense of a transcendent self is, um, in in essence, corresponds with our present sense of self, in which we are an act, a doer, a knower, and a feeler, and we have a certain uh, persona that. Um, um, is a result of applying ourselves in terms of being a doer, a knower, and a, and a feeler in relation to the Maya Shakti. Hmm? So those same qualities of the self, hmm, an agent of action, and which implies will, hmm, has will, willful, can will things, hmm, uh, can apprehend or know, hmm, and um, and experience when applied in relation to the sarup shakti again uh, results in a spiritual persona so what yourself is like here is very much what like yourself is like in the in the fifth state except of course that it's that's it's blissful and it, 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 it's it's uh, and the um, it's it constitutes a, a loving self because it's everything for Krishna rather than a selfish self. But but comparatively, I, I guess I want to say in yoga, Siddhanta or Advaita Vedanta, these same qualities of being a doer, a knower, and a feeler are not uh, inherent, not part of the self. In fact, in the way to the Vedanta, there is no 
thought to be no self. So these are dim prospects uh, comparatively and they're foreign hmm, to our present experience of what it means to be a self and to be a person. The Gaudi idea is very, um, um, well, what would you say? It's very um, essentially, hmm, it says what you are in terms of your present experience is what you are. But there is the way you're applying yourself in relation to the Maya Shakti is the problem. If you apply that same self in relation to the Surup Shakti in relation to Bhakti, it will be the end of the problem. So it's not an artificial imposition. It's not a doing away with some uh, essential, what we what we think to be some essential aspects of ourself that I that I am an agent of action that I I have a causal efficacy on the world. I make decisions and I choose thoughts to entertain and to not entertain. For example, uh, I have will. Um, I experience. Uh, I have subjective experiences of happiness and sadness. This, this, this is uh, my nature is such that that's that's part of me, and I, I'm an apprehender, a knower. So, all these things are required for being for loving. Without one of them, you can't love. So. Some of these schools in Indian thought, uh, uh, Hindu Hindu thought and so forth, are not schools of loving hmm? in the full sense of the term of Gaudiya Vaishnava. It very much isn't there for its deity is Krishna, hmm? who's the real heartbeat of the Absolute. If you look at the, all the Hindu gods and goddesses, um, and what do you find in Krishna? He, he's just playful lover and so forth and uh, and so it's depicting the heart of the absolute if you will which is of course uh, that which drives it the brain could die but if the heart's still beating then we say he's, he's still alive right mm-hmm. isn't it What else? Does that help? Yes. Not long ago, we watched a little bit of Mahabharata and raised some discussion. And I was thinking, Mahabharata was supposed to explain Vedas to less intelligent people, but it seems to be so confusing because people who follow dharma seem to uh, do something that ends up really bad and causes war and whatnot. So how to understand that it's for less intelligent people to explain them what religion is. For instance, Pandavas follow dharma of Kshatriya, uh, so they accept this gambling match, but uh, as a result, like they 
lose their wife, they lose themselves. I think that you have to look at the Mahabharata and um, you have to look at the values that the peop- of the people, the players. Overall, there's an overarching sense of purpose and meaning to life that transcends um, human, uh, the, the human experience. And so the human experience is not valued in the Mahabharata in the same way it is in the world, in a secular world today, as, as the all in all, so to speak. And so when, when it's not valued in that way and there's a higher value system in place, then those who I don't, don't identify with that higher value can find the way in which characters in the Mahabharata on the human level deal with the human situation. They find it objectionable. But one of the reasons, and I think the overriding reason they may find it objectionable is because they do not share the higher values that comes through consistently in the Mahabharata that causes the players to act on the human level in certain ways. Hmm? So there's a, there's, a, there's a strong sense of the relativity of the human life. Hmm? And, uh, and its purpose um, f- for um, being that of, of, of experiencing that more. In that way, it's very valuable. The human life is very much valued in the Mahabharata, but it's valued in a different way. It's not valued as, as the some substance of experience and you have to have a full life and how could, drop, how could, um, could um, Gandhari blind herself you know, for her whole life because her husband was blind? Uh, that doesn't compute in modern society. Uh, that she should, you know, be uh, even think like that. That my husband's blind, therefore I'll blind myself. Hmm? So th- these are social sensibilities and so forth of the times, but they're also indicative of, of 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 the way in which human life was looked at. It's valued hmm, extremely, but it's not valued in the same way that it is in modern society. In modern society, it's valued for, like, you know, do it while you can, enjoy it, uh, maybe don't hurt others while you're doing it, but have a full human life, and it's all you've got. Hmm? This is it. So the sense that this is all you've got, this is it, is very, 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 very much uh, absent in the Mahabharata. Hmm? And, but... But the human life is valued, nonetheless, and more so in the sense that in modern society, because it's valued as a means for attaining that which is much more rich and um, rewarding and real than than uh, than than the human frame of existence. Human existence is has a purpose, and its purpose is to facilitate the pursuit of transcendence. So if for the pursuit of transcendence, human life 
as we know it and think as modern society thinks of it and knows it is seems to be hmm, um, uh, re, re, related to with different sensibilities in a way that modern people can't that doesn't compute for them um, then uh, you know this is this is you have to look more deeply what it's saying and so forth um, yeah, you know and then and, and that said it's 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 a setting in which there's romance and war and all these things that are that are um, part of every society that won't go away intrigue cheating hypocrisy um, you know um, humanness the hum, humanness of succumbing to human passions and 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 uh, not rising to the occasion of of uh, doing the right thing, hmm? um, war, and so forth. This is just all parts of human human life. Uh, uh, we have those things today. I mean, modern society. Uh, more people have been killed in war in modern society than in non-religious wars. Than all the religious wars and all the non-religious wars of previous centuries put together. From twentieth century. First World War, Second World War, and onward. Uh, you know, these were secular wars. People died for, you know, more people have died from this. So, and wars going on constantly, economic war and so forth. So I don't know, it's just part of, maybe, you know, the Mahabar just, that's just part, that's part of the life and how it plays out particularly and so forth. Well, there are dramatic characters in Leela that are playing different roles and so forth. Hmm. Sometimes even devotees may play on becoming roles to some extent, but it all has a higher kind of import that is being conveyed, and you have to look and see what what that is, and see by there by the real value, as it's thought in the Veda of the human life. That being, it provides us an opportunity to um, transcend the limits the human experience and and thereby be all that you could actually be. Hmm. Does that help? Uh, I have to digest it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was thinking like that the dharma should always bring good results. Dharma should bring good results? Yeah, I mean that's what I don't know. It seems to imply that uh, people engage in um, doing uh, proper things to get, have good results, also on material level. So you're asking why the Pandavas had bad results, for example? Yeah, I mean temporary, but uh, anyway, it, it's not only about Pandava because uh, others seem also to some extent follow Dharma. And uh, in course of following Dharma, uh, they were like, seems from our perspective, uh, neglecting something that seemed uh, more important. So I was thinking, like, maybe Krishna said, just give up all these Dharmas. (laughs) Well, Krishna uses the Pandavas there, uh, you know, in, in, in ways and other devotees to teach. Certain things. I mean, uh, they're not thought from the Gaudiya perspective to be under the influence of dharma or karma. Hmm? 
how can they be? They're great devotees of Krishna. So Krishna's creating circumstances for them, sometimes that appear inauspicious and so forth. And we see how they dealt with them, how their devotion never uh, swayed or was was never... Um, that's because they had a bad... They got exiled, therefore they don't believe in God anymore. Something like that. Uh, they, they showed a different example. And so they're used like that. It's a, it's a drama. It's a leela. Different persons are used for different purposes and even devotees. What to speak of... You know that you should get good results by car- by good karma. You should get better results by by bhakti, right? We find the best devotees in the Mahabharata. They were getting a, a raw deal, being exiled and so on and so forth. But the the acharyas have explained that that Krishna uses devotees in this way. It is teaching us something. So I mean, you know. These are like not as much like to be. There's a deep import, both both uh, a religious and a, and a spiritual import to the to the texts. And without that orientation, they can they can probably um, they would be very much misunderstood by by people. So you have to look for those themes and so forth. What else? Yes. I was just wondering because you were talking about the mental realm. What's if you could say something about like position of worship in the mental realm, like the Manasa Puja, for example? Why it's required at the beginning of, of doing a puja? What's its well, the Manasa Puja and things like this? These are all for training the mind to just to spiritualize the mind, hmm? to put spiritual thoughts and objects and so forth on the mind. So it's sedularatmanam atmanam atmanobanduratmaivaruparatmana. The mind is the friend and the enemy of the of the jiva. So it can be friendly if it's trained properly hmm, to always uh, in itself chooses spiritual thoughts and doesn't choose other thoughts that arise hmm, and consciously enter, entertains then. Spiritual thought puts itself in a position to be in touch with that through sadhana and so forth. And, and so that kind of thinking, that's very helpful to the soul. That liberates the soul. Hmm. Hmm. Suffering is all in the mind. If you didn't think about it, you wouldn't feel it. Hmm. Sometimes people do don't think about it, and they don't feel. It. And then later they think about it, and they go, "Wow, that does hurt." Um, it's all in the mind, suffering. Mm. So it's a very it's the cusp there, you know. It's, it's the it's in between the physical and the spiritual world, and it can be it can be trained. So that's what these sadhans are for. Mm. And then you enter the realm of ritual. In the mind, hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't call that the psychic world. Right? I would call that, as I do, the the, the, the realm of a ritual, where um, there is a, a meeting point between the spiritual and the material, 
and for the uh, between eternity and the t- and time, and from which one can enter into eternity. Hmm. Just like we have the deity, physical form of the deity, and so forth. So we, in our mind, also we arrange it a proper environment and so forth. Hmm. Temple in the mind. What else? Um, I was just wondering, I don't know much about Gorky Shore besides um, being as what's in context of him being the guru of Bhakti Siddhanta. I was just wondering if he could speak on him sometime. Well, yeah, I could. What time is it now? What's oh, another subject, so we'll get to that. Yeah, Gorkashura's Babaji Maharaj Ki Jai. Sisidavji Gopal Ki Jai. Gorbhakta Vrinda Ki Jai. Gaur Premanande.